finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. And for this episode, we read a novella called The Ballad of the Sad Cafe by Carson McCullers. Not the salad of the bad cafe. No, that's a entirely different Yelp reveal. Thank you. So let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about Carson McCullough. She was born in 1917. She died in 1967. She's a Southern writer. Her uh, style is depicted as Southern Gothic. Um, she mostly wrote short stories, but she did publish eight novels in her short career. Yeah, The Heart is the Lonely Hunter is her most well-known work that got an adaptation into a movie. Right, right. And I read it in my first reading list, The Modern Library Top 100. So she wrote this novel in 1940. She was just 24 years old, and it was her first novel, and it became a huge international success. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make me feel any way at all. Totally neutral. So. I also like this story about why she decided to become a writer. Apparently, she went to New York to study music. She was a piano player. And while she was on her way to Juilliard, she lost her tuition money on the subway. So she decided not to go to college and became a cleaning woman and started writing. And that's when she wrote her first novel. So, so The thing is, like, that story sounds ridiculous, but... What was tuition to Juilliard at that time? Exactly. It's probably like a couple hundred dollars, maybe even if that. Yeah. So like you could lose out on the subway. Yeah, but I think that the interesting thing is she really didn't, it didn't devastate her. She sort of was just like, well, I'll just become a writer. And she just got out her typewriter and wrote The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. That's it. So she was considered um, a Southern Gothic writer, like we talked about, like a lot of writers at the time she reminds me a lot of flannery o'connor they have a very similar life story both were um sickly young women who were sort of um compelled they had this compulsion to write they both wrote in this style where they um talked a lot about isolation and not fitting in and this sort of weird thought process that a lot of people have that at the time really wasn't talked about um, she talked a lot of it about feeling alienated, about sadness, and about this sort of weird type of loneliness that one feels even when one is surrounded by a group of people. She writes a lot about tragic love stories, tragic connections, um, relationships that go bad. I mean, just basic realism she writes about. I mean, all of her books have a weird eccentric character and they're sort of character studies, but they're the most extreme, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So The Ballad of the Sad Cafe was written in 1951 and it's part of a short story compilation that has other stories in it. And I think this is like her most well-known short story compilation. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I didn't know this, and I couldn't find any information about this, but apparently at one point it was made into a movie. This was? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So there really either wasn't a very good movie or it never got released or there really isn't any information about it. 
So do you want to tell us a little bit about, give us a synopsis of what the story is about? Uh, sure. It is uh, set entirely within a small town that I believe is unnamed, uh, that somewhere in the south, that's kind of far from any sort of major cities. Chicha is identified as like the closest big town. But there's also one city called Society City. Yeah, It yeah. sounds very fancy. And apparently there are a lot of cockfights there. <laughs> okay, it's not that fancy. <laughs> and uh, the sort of main focus of the story, the titular cafe is, or was, located in the ground floor of this big house owned by this woman named Miss Amelia, who's this uh, big, strong, independent, business-savvy business woman who does all sorts of different things in the town, including serving as a doctor Making and selling whiskey. Uh, she ran the general store. Yeah. She, like, cuts business deals and all sorts of stuff. And she's, like, super independent and self, self-reliant. self And then one day this dude shows up who's identified as a hunchback. His name is Lyman. He claims to be her cousin. Uh, they He moves in with her. And they begin a relationship, the specifics of which are never really explored but it's very affectionate and it's mostly one-sided with miss amelia being affectionate to lyman and lyman being kind of his own thing sort of this like gadfly gadabout type of dude and he kind of convinces her to turn her store into this cafe which becomes this like meeting place for the community and this like happy spot in the town and then her ex-husband marvin macy is released from the penitentiary after robbing several filling stations. Of course. And he shows up with his knife and his guitar and completely changes the tone of the story because he's just a, like a Flannery O'Connor character oh, who yeah. walks into this like weird story where, and he, uh, through no action of his own, steals away Cousin Lyman's affection. And her, uh, Miss Amelia and Marvin kind of exist in the town in this state of mutual disdain for a while until finally they decide to have a like wrestling match for the soul of the town and for the love of cousin Lyman, basically. Uh, even though they never say, talk about it, in the, they never talk about it at all, let alone talking about it in those specific terms. And Miss Amelia is going to win the fight until cousin Lyman interferes on behalf of Marvin. And then they trash the cafe and all of her stuff and leave town. And she becomes this withered old shut-in whose fate is unknown, but she will presumably die when her disrepaired house collapses on her. And then the story cuts at the end to a short, like, insert, I guess, epilogue called The Twelve Mortal Men, which is really just a description of 12 guys working on a chain gang and the process by which they sit, like move into and out of group songs, basically. Yeah, that's kind of like a weird aftershock that's just appended to the story. Yeah. But I think it should be, I guess, things that you should know about the story is that it starts out by revealing that the house is in decline and describes the sad face of Miss Amelia through the window. Yeah. And then it starts to unroll back to what happened. 
So Miss Amelia, whose father, I guess, was the sort of heart of the town, he passed away and she's been living on her own and doing all these things to sort of earn money and to sort of take care of the town, which they're, the only thing in the town is this Miss Amelia's store and this sawmill, which yeah. is kind of like in decline. So I guess like the whole town is sort of poor and things are falling apart and there's like very little people left in the town. There's no commerce. And for some reason, the town folks spend an enormous amount of time looking in other people's windows milling about, like, waiting for some kind of action to happen. Yeah, there's a a lot of people look through Miss Amelia's window. (laughs) And I think, too, when Marvin comes back, she describes his activities as, like, playing his guitar and eating the food from little children's plates and then looking in the sawmill laughing at all the people who are working hard. And walking around the swamp doing something unknown. Right. So I want to talk about the the writing style. Uh, it's really, really good. It's like so good that I'm going to have to like restrain myself from just aping her style the next time I try to write something. And her, the I don't know how to describe it. The type of narrator she employs is really novel. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone do it quite like this. Because it's third person, semi-omniscient. It doesn't spend a lot of time in people's heads. It rarely, like, it gets through into into people's inner workings. And oftentimes when it does, it's more in a speculative manner. Like, oh, he must have felt like this, so-and-so. Uh, it also has, like, weird limitations. The specifics of... Miss Amelia's relationships with both Marvin and Lyman are obscured because when it comes to describing them, all of a sudden the narrator can't get through walls and windows and everything is described through like the appearance of like gazing in at these people. And it's like some stuff you just can't see, some stuff you just can't know as an outsider and the narrator can't tell you those things. It's almost like the narrator is the town. Yeah. And that... It's telling you this story. Yeah, so it's like as the townspeople remember it, it's like, oh, we saw them fighting, but like we didn't, we weren't in their bedroom, so we don't know what they were fighting about, just that they were fighting. And that's how a lot of it is handled. It's also like this very, the actual language of the narrator is this like very folksy, matter of fact sort of way of speaking. It refers to people as like old rascals. And stuff like that. And there are a lot of times where the narrator is almost playing straight man to the events of the story. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think, if you, I mean, as you're describing the story, it sounds completely ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's like this really tall woman that doesn't have any social skills takes up with this charismatic grifter of a hunchback who wears this shawl over i mean the details that she gives the characters are like really enrich the sort of weird eccentric personalities and then like marvin shows up in his tight blue jeans and his boots and his you know his slick back hair and you kind of you really know like what kind of guy what what this man actually is like 
And then you, so in your mind, you can fully form like a picture of what these characters are like. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought it was, I didn't comment on it, but I thought it was funny when you described her stuff as being realist. Cause it's, it, there's like a realist's attitude towards setting and characterization where it's like all of these details about like, here's how the town works. Here's how Miss Amelia treats kids that have colds and all this stuff. But then in the plot, and the characters themselves are not at all grounded in realism. They're, they're much more, it's, it almost has the tone of magical realism without anything actually magical happening in it. I think it's kind of like, I mean, we're reading this sort of backwards because we're reading like authors like Catherine Dunn mm-hmm. and Karen Russell and Amy Bender who do Karen this- Russell's a good. Uh, comparison right and but they're kind they do the same style of what she does but because we haven't read her first and then read the modern influences that it looks a little bit weird oh yeah no but i think i mean i like it a lot but yeah there's like miss amelia is almost like demigod strong she's like a samson figure okay she's like a like a you know like like a paul bunyan almost i mean she's sort of like you know, this really large, tall woman that walks through the, you know, the swamp and she's, she's making like moonshine and she's got this giant still. But her moonshine and- is like really so good and it like makes you reveal your inner character when you drink it. Like she's also kind of a Willy Wonka. Yeah. Almost. Like she's this very, uh, eccentric figure. But then like Cousin Lyman is of indeterminate age. That he never, and he will never reveal how old he is. Right. And then there's this sort of allusion to like shenanigans in the big city. And then there's this kind of like this weird depiction of him where he seems to be hiding. I mean, all the weird like affectations he has. Like I said, he puts the shawl on and he wears the clothes. And yeah. The way he sort of hops about. There's a point where. Are you about to talk about my favorite part in the story? When he tries to impress Marvin. But yes, by jumping around. <laughs> well, you know, so, so Marvin shows up and Marvin is like this, he's the devil, basically. He's like this, like, aloof, like, empty vessel, but he's like incredibly charismatic and cruel. And Lyman is immediately infatuated with him. And the narrator's like, Lyman had this thing that he did to impress people where he would flip his, he would uh, flutter his ears, wiggle his ears. Right. And he starts doing it with no preamble or context. He starts wiggling his ears at Marvin to try and impress him. And then when that doesn't work, he, he starts fluttering his eyelids and then doing a little shuffling dance. And the narrator, this is one of the parts I love where the narrator is like kind of playing straight man. He goes, everyone was impressed except for Marvin. And it's like, why is anyone impressed with this? <laughs> But it's like, no, yeah, just everybody liked this for some reason. But it's like, there's nothing going on in the town. So even this small drama, I mean, because even the drama itself is not that dramatic. I mean, you know, Amelia is there and Cousin Lyman shows up and he moves in and then Marvin comes back and he slowly integrates himself. And for months they live like that until... The sort of culmination is this fight on Groundhog Day. This, yes, <laughs> specifically on Groundhog Day, which was weird because we were reading it in preparation for 
We were reading it in February to prepare for March, so we were reading it like around Groundhog Day. Yeah, and on Day. Groundhog Day when they have the fight, Cousin Lyman, with no explanation, shows up at the cafe with the Groundhog. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, he saw the shadow, it's going to be bad weather. And then he just has the Groundhog throughout the fight, and then it's never explained what happens to it afterwards. But there's some weird, like, tension going on. At one point, Miss Amelia tries to poison Marvin, and, and that then accidentally eats it herself. Yes. And then there's all these sort of like dagger, like, like visual daggers being thrown at each other. And, you know, there's barbs and they're exchanging these sort of verbal fights. And then for some reason it just escalates to where she's going to fight him. And she puts on her overalls. I mean, she like goes back to her like moonshine outfit that she wears. Well, in the cafe, whenever they're serving people in the cafe, she wears a red dress. Yes. But then she puts on her coveralls to have the fight with Marvin, who leaves his boots that he got from the penitentiary on, but takes his shirt off and greases himself up in lard. Of course. Of course. But they fight, and eventually it starts as them punching each other, and then it becomes a wrestling match. And then she, in this like nice little, in this nice little microcosm of their characters, they're like, Marvin is faster and greasier. But Miss Amelia is stronger. And that's how she bests him. But then she loses because she doesn't have Cousin Lyman on her side anymore. Well, it's also interesting because I guess Marvin isn't... He lives in the town and knows Miss Amelia. And when she is a, older, I guess she's... Before she's... She must be between 18 and 25 at some point because she's still a young girl. He changes his ways to woo her. Yeah. And then manages to convince her to marry him and he moves in. And just within a span of 10 days, they never say what Marvin does, but maybe his true personality is revealed. And Miss Amelia beats him up the first time and kicks him out. And that's how he ends up going on the road and becoming a stick-up man at the filling station. And he ends up going to the penitentiary. And at some point, Amelia assists the police... In finding him and having him arrested, and and she's partly complying for him being put into the penitentiary. Yeah, but it's, it's more complicated because it's like, they get married, and then on their wedding night, we get one of these sequences where it's viewed entirely through the window, so we don't actually know. We know what's happening, but we don't know why. They go up to the room, and then she comes down out of the room and spends the night... In the bottom of the house, like reading the paper and hanging out by the fire. And then she just keeps going about her normal duties like she's not married to him. And every time he gets close to her, she punches him in the face. I don't know if that's like, I don't know what that's about. If that's like a comment on like femininity, if that's a comment on like women's roles in marriage or because I mean, at the time that McCullers was writing this, she herself was going through a divorce. So she had a very bad marriage to a fellow writer, and this might be a reflection of that. But I feel like it's like Amelia is supposed to be the strong character, and she simultaneously is being taken advantage by every single person that she has a relationship with. Yeah, yeah. So when, after Marvin is gone and he goes on the penitentiary and Amelia is by herself and she takes up with Cousin Lyman... There's really no clear indication that Cousin Lyman knows that Marvin is her ex-husband. I don't think he knows that until he shows up. But yeah, she specifically won't talk about him. 
I think Lyman really does a lot of things to be antagonistic towards Amelia because he knows that she doesn't like Marvin and he invites Marvin to live in the house. So at one point they're all living in the house Mm -hmm. and Amelia ends up sleeping on the couch because she loves cousin Lyman. And when he gives his room to Marvin, she gives her room to cousin Lyman and she ends up on the couch. So even though it's her house and she has these two sort of freeloaders that are living with her, she ends up suffering the most. Yeah, I mean, this is a story about someone who's like destroyed by love. Like, love is the chink in her armor, and it rips her apart until she's completely alone. I mean, the description... The description of her after Lyman and Marvin leave is so sad. Like, she just... Like, her, her muscles wither away, and she won't leave the house, and she never rebuilds her still, and... There's this really funny part where it's like, she used to be this like great doctor. And part of why she's a great doctor is she never told anybody to stop drinking whiskey or eating fried foods. Right. But there's this, they're like, now after Lyman leaves, she either just tells you you're going to die, or she tries to give you some cure that's like so arcane and complicated that you can't possibly do it. And it's like, it's, she just gets like super mean and disconnected. But also, I think it's really funny, the idea that, like, uh, some dude comes in and he's like, well, what what's your prognosis, Miss Amelia? And she's like, you're going to die, Stumpy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the one, the, there's some very few characters that are actually fleshed out, but the one, one of them is there's a man who is so sensitive that he cries all the time and he takes care of children, even though the children are awful. Yeah. And he takes care of all the children in the town that the town folk don't want to take care of. So. I mean, the main, besides Miss Amelia, Lyman, and Marvin, the main characters are, the main fixtures in the town are that dude, Marvin's brother, and then Merle Ryan and Stumpy McPhail. Yes. <laughs> But it's like... And Henry Ford Crimp is another guy. And there's two characters named Henry. Yes. Because Marvin's brother is also named Henry. But I feel like the town, like, simultaneously, like... The town sort of uses her, too. Which is another thing. I mean, they, like... They buy her whiskey, her moonshine, but they don't really care about her. And they sort of treat her, like, almost like entertainment. So, like, when the... Even before the cafe opens up, they come around and they watch and they buy her moonshine and they wait for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And then when Cousin Lyman shows up, there's a part where everybody says, oh, you know, Amelia is so interested in, you know, her own financial wellness that she's probably only being nice to him so she can steal whatever treasures he has in his suitcase. Yeah. We never learn where he came from. We never learn what his relationship with her is. We never learn what her fight with Marvin was about. We never learn definitively what happens to Marvin and Lyman after they leave. But I think it's, I mean, I'm sure that Lyman is some type of shady grifter Mm. because he sort of not romantically but he does woo her in a way to make her like him yeah and then when she does like him he takes advantage of her because even when he's helping with with the cafe she's the one doing all the work yeah he doesn't do anything and he like causes trouble between people he's this like very flighty chaotic character i mean i think we're we're like 
the sort of thesis statement that McCullers has is this idea that like all love is an equal. There's the beloved and the lover. And I guess theoretically there could be a relationship where both parties are both beloved and lover, but she doesn't show us any of those. And so it's like, she goes out of her way, I think to make Lyman kind of unlikable and thorny to highlight how, powerful and sort of reality bending the the relationship the lover can have to the beloved well i think it's true because everyone in the town kind of sees them as this sort of greedy selfish buffoon and they just tolerate him because amelia is so infatuated with him that she has put him in this place of like really high regard Mm -hmm. and nothing that he does ever can be like wrong or I mean, he starts taking stuff from the store. He starts taking stuff from the house. And then at some point he has all these things and she makes a comment like she has given him like her father's things. But you get the impression that he just sort of came in and made himself at home and took advantage of everything. Yeah. He starts wearing like the father's clothes and, you know, taking her like knickknacks and doing different things and then finally at the end when marvin and lyman leave they destroy the cafe and they take all of her possessions yeah they burn down the still they poison her favorite meal like which is real fucked up yeah with it it was like enough poison to kill every cow in the county or some just crazy description like that and on a plate of sausage and grits which is apparently her favorite food but not only that, he convinces her to slaughter the hogs that she buys mm. too early in the season and all the meat goes bad. Yeah. And it's like like they're they it's like they have come together to destroy Miss Amelia, but there's really no reason for Cousin Lyman to have a grudge against Miss Amelia. Well, I can see it with Marvin because Marvin wants revenge for how he was treated during the marriage. I but I think Cousin Lyman's just caught up in this thing. He's just like this like wild id he's kind of like a spoiled child he just sort of does whatever is going to be amusing in the in the moment and so like oh well what's amusing to him now is just to destroy like i think what that ends up highlighting is that like the the beloved does not need to have any sort of connection to the lover like it's clear in that moment and and really from the moment that marvin shows up that Cousin Lyman has no real loyalty or affection for Miss Amelia. Being the beloved has not, does not require or like even, uh, suggest that you need to reciprocate. But I think the same thing that happened to her with Cousin Lyman is what happened to her with Marvin because when Marvin. It's the other way around, right? And with Marvin, she's the beloved until she turns him out. Right. Right, that's true. But I mean, she, in a way, Marvin tricked her because he was originally the town bad boy. But once he realized that he put his eye on Miss Amelia for whatever reason, maybe it was sort of clearly because he was a lazy good for nothing and he wanted her money. But he changed his whole personality and persona to woo her. And then once he wooed her, something he he must have changed back to his initial ways, or she realized that he was not authentic, and something happened in their relationship. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think that's the case. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if it's that or if it's just like... Because I kind of feel bad for him in the initial thing with Miss Amelia. Once he returns, he's just fully evil. <clears throat> but I wonder if it's just like, you know, they get into the bedroom and she just realizes this relationship is not what she thought it was. She like she didn't want a physical relationship. I mean, yeah. it sounds like he's a real hunk by 1950s Southern standards. I mean, the way yeah. she describes him, you think he was like, you know, like James Dean walking around in his cowboy boots. But mm-hmm. who knows? But I think like the idea is that like he's supposed to like Simon. Am I it's not Simon? Lyman represents like how like the beloved can be bad and. Marvin represents how the lover can be bad. And, like, I think, like, that's... There's clearly still some of that, like... Whatever affection he felt towards her, like, it exists in a transmuted form. Because he's still dedicated to her when he shows up. He's just dedicated to making her miserable now. Right. Instead of trying to win her over. And it's like, here's the, like, shitty version of being the lover... And then with Lyman, it's like, here's the shitty version of being the beloved, where you're like this leech that you have called all of the power of making this other person happy, and you don't have any responsibility to to actually do that. Do you think that Marvin used Cousin Lyman's affection for him as almost like a cat's paw to, like, push his revenge? Yeah, but he seem, also seems like totally oblivious to Lyman. Yeah. I guess because he's I mean, not. I think he maybe takes advantage of it once he realizes what's happening. I think when Marvin shows back in up, he's like, he doesn't see Lyman as like a romantic threat to him. No. Because his original plan is he's going to get Amelia back. But then he realizes that she's the same person that she was when he left. And that's when he decides he's going to destroy her. Because like Marvin has like resentment for like the people in the town. And yeah. for Amelia, and he even hates the mill. I mean, there's like a part where he like is aggressive towards like the salt mill. Yeah, no, yeah, he's he's just like this like ball of negative energy. I mean, he like he walks in and he's like a black hole that sucks the like momentum of the narrative and the tone of the story in toward him. Like literally, he shows up and it snows for the first time in town ever. Yeah, and there's this whole like another really funny part where. Miss Amelia shuts her house up when it snows because she has to contemplate what she's going to do with this new development that it can snow in the town. Yes. <laughs> I also like how the fight becomes almost like a social event. Yeah. And like people, even the people from society city show up to watch this fight. And then, you know, they clear out everything in the store, every part of the cafe until it's almost like a empty room and all these people crowd in there and watch them fight and then there's even sort of like this pre-fight montages going on where they where she describes her like putting on her overalls and marvin getting greased up and they both eat four servings of roast beef i think right and, and then, then lay down completely still for like four hours to gather <laughs> energy for the fight yes and even though because like they're the same person yes like and it's sort of like first, like McCullers is saying, well, opposites attract. Amelia is attracted to this dwarf for, mm. who is the opposite of her. And then, but then it turns out that like her and Marvin are sort of like you said, exactly the same. Yeah. And they both have like a greater agency than it seems like the rest of the people in the town 
have. I mean, I, I want to, like, what you were saying about, like, oh, the town is using Miss Amelia and they don't, like, support her and stuff. I think that's the point of the 12 mortal men uh, epilogue thing. Because the way that that's structured is, like, there's these tw- 12 guys working on the chain gang. And they sing together. And it starts with one guy. And then everyone else slowly joins in until they're all singing at the same time. And then they all drop out until it's one guy singing. And then they all come in again. And it's this cycle. And it's this idea that, like, I think what she's getting at there is this need for a community. Where it's like, a Miss Amelia is the only one singing throughout the whole novel. She's the one who's doing all the work to support the town and lift everybody's spirits and run the cafe. And nobody's joining in and nobody's helping her. So when she falls, you know, prey to despair at the at Cousin Lyman's betrayal, there's no one to pick up the, and carry the tune. So that everything just falls apart and the town becomes this desolate, empty place free of joy and song. Well, I think because that, they were relying on one person to sing when they should have all been singing. I think you're right because once she's brought down and once the town sees that she's like a human, you know, and she's frail and she has like these defects, mm-hmm. they just abandon her. They just, they literally just walk out the door and then, you know, the mill closes, her house is in disrespect, disrepair. There, no one cares what happens to her after the cafe is gone. Yeah, no, no one steps in to stop Marvin and Lyman from wrecking her house and all of her stuff. Like, they just, yeah, they don't care. Because they're not, like, I don't know. They, like, I think the idea is that the 12 mortal men see each other as equals. Whereas in some way, the townspeople, I think, look down on Miss Amelia for being, like, a weirdo. Right, but if she wasn't a weirdo and didn't do all the things that she did, which are things that, like... The things that make her a weirdo are the things that the town takes from her. Mm. Like the moonshine and the cafe and the medicine yeah. and this store where she sells like things that like really no one needs and kind of weird. Like, I don't know. There's a part where she has a typewriter. Mm. I think like that's the part where Carson McCullers is like, this is me. You know, she writes these stories, these memoirs of herself on her typewriter in her little office. Yeah. I imagine if any character is to stand in for her husband, it's Lyman, right? Probably. Because, I mean, he's the most... I mean, Marvin is vindictive and his actions are revenge. But I think that Cousin Lyman is the predator. Yeah. He has come, he has come to find her, to have a place to hide and to take from her all that he can. And then once he gets what he wants and he finds someone else that he admires more in Mm -hmm. Marvin, he just leaves. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing is like, what did they end up doing? You have like a hillbilly guitar player on the road. Yeah, with this... With, with this dwarf who's dressed like grandma. He's dressed like Tintin, <laughs> is what he's dressed like. Because he describes him coming down when he's, he gets dressed after she takes him in. And he's wearing, like, knee-length breeches and a sweater. Like, he's dressed like Tintin. I always, in my mind, the way I look at him, I think he's like the guy from Austin Powers. You know, that the character that... Which character from Austin Powers? What's his name? Dr. Evil? No, the actor. Vern Troyer? Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe. It's like a mix between, like, the baby from Rugrats and him. <laughs> like, that's what I think he looks like. 
He's a, he's a very <laughs> weird character. Well, yeah, because they like they can't tell if he's like they. Some of them think he was twelve when he showed up. Yes. But some of them think he's like in his sixties. Like he's like uh, impossible to determine his age. And when like, people ask him about him, he says, "I don't know how long I've been on this earth. It could be ten years. It could be ten thousand. But he also, I think he he's kind of like he's he, like an, he acts like a child. Yeah, like the dancing and the like attraction to like shiny objects. Well, there's this weird thing like, where he's constantly taking. He has a yeah, the snuff, sweet snuff is this thing, which is just cocoa powder and sugar, like hot chocolate mix, basically. That he keeps putting in his, he keeps eating and like rubbing in his mouth throughout the whole story. Right, and he gets so hopped up on like the caffeine and sugar from that that he can't like when they're having a bonfire, he literally cannot sit still, and he's like hopping around like a jester almost. It's very yeah. bizarre. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the idea is that like Miss Amelia is mature and like I said, self reliant to a fault, and he is like. This man child or possibly regular child. Yeah. But I in think contrast it... to her. And then Marvin is this kind of like disconnected force of malice by the time he returns to the town. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's a weird, weird story. Yeah. I agree. So. I feel it's like, it's like about like a lot of her stories. It's about like this alienation that people are feeling every single character including the town is feeling alienated for a different reason it's about like sort of personality weirdness that can mm-hmm. like impact the way that people see you because every one of these characters has some weird predilection or quirk that's sort of heightened and exaggerated in this story it's about like isolation every single character in this story is isolated from themselves and from the other characters I mean, it's about, like, unrequited love or, like you said, like, the inequality of, like, a relationship. There's no, like, healthy, like, relationships. None of them have a healthy relationship. But I also think it's, like, sort of a little bit about, like, gender roles and Mm -hmm. even gender awareness. Because, like, Miss Amelia, even though at some point she's very feminine and other parts she's very masculine. And depending on which persona that she's showing the town reacts to her in a different way yeah yeah because it's like the part where when she shows up for the wedding and she's very feminine and she's wearing the yellow dress the town is kind of like this is weird and even marvin is like this is not yeah right and then immediately after the wedding she returns to her sort of masculine state she puts her trousers back on she smokes a cigar and she starts doing, like, all these things that are sort of... She smokes a pipe. It's her dad's pipe. Smokes her dad's pipe. Yeah. But I think it has, like, a lot to do with, like, sort of societal expectations almost. And I think that's a reflection on her, Carson McCullers, as a writer and as a, as a woman and as a human being. Like, that's reflected in the story. Yeah, yeah. But I thought it was funny, like like we talked about earlier... The town folk are a bunch of creeps. Yeah, they suck. I mean, they're just well, like... Well, it's like they're whole... They benefit from a feeling of community, but none of them feel any responsibility toward the community. And they're voyeurs, and yeah, they, they're just bad. They're just like... They don't really even stop to contemplate why the town sucks now once it sucks. 
they're just like, meh, whatever. We're just going to, I guess we'll just buy this new liquor from somewhere else that's bad and gives you warts on your liver, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And you can't even go to Miss Amelia to get cured of your warts. Yeah. Because she no longer cures people. Well, yeah, she'll just tell you you're going to die. And then eventually she shuts herself inside the house completely. Yeah. And, like, that's the kind of, like, the punishment for Miss Amelia being Miss Amelia is she's completely destroyed. But that's sort of what I was talking about where it's like, this doesn't feel like Southern Gothic to me until the end. Where it's like, now the town feels like the setting for a Southern Gothic story. And it's like, almost recontextualizes the Ballad of the Sad Cafe as like an origin story for that kind of setting. It's like, well, here's how a place gets this sad and desolate. It's because something bad happens and nobody feels any responsibility to do anything about it. And so it just, the badness infests the town until it's rotten to the core. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what... Carson McCuller in general is saying is everything is rotten to the core. Yeah. it's Love is impossible. Yeah, it's I almost think... like, it's not even like a hedgehog's dilemma thing. It's like a like a like a vampire bat's dilemma. But I mean, like everyone's a parasite on each other. I think though, if you think a lot about like the genre, the, the sort of southern gothic movement a lot of this sort of heavy hitters in that genre in that movement are kind of reflect the same thing because like if you think about like william faulkner and mm-hmm. dora weltley and then cormac mccarthy is considered a southern gothic writer and like uh i don't know i mean i talk about cormac the- mccarthy's an interesting comparison because he's almost like what if she was more interested in Marvin. What if you were more interested in Marvin as a character than you were Amelia? What kind of shit would you write? Shit like Cormac McCarthy writes. Exactly. But I think it's like, I mean, Harper Lee is considered a Southern Gothic writer. And it's like... I could see definitely see um, some comparisons between Harper Lee's writing and, and this, specifically. Like, this kind of, like, the the way that the town is sort of portrayed and the like the tension of like or not the tension but they're like they're they're both kind of interested in deflating the myth of the small town yeah i think like a lot of southern gothic is focused on this sort of male violence or male like masculine aggressiveness and i think like flannery o'connor talks a lot about that but i think like mcculler takes that sort of Southern Gothic style of like, this is about masculinity and violence. And then says, what if it's about like the female experience and violence and sort of flips it a little bit. I, but I think it's really cool that like Marvin is a very masculine, violent figure, but Miss Amelia is never in danger from his violence. She's an equal participant. And then eventually a victor, like, She's she is just as capable of being violent as he is, and she's better at it. I mean, they, she even talks about like people get excited for her fight with Marvin because they've seen her fight people before. She fought a lawyer, that, right. <laughs> the tax man. Yeah, like, and she's like carrying all these carrying around machinery and stuff. But yeah, there's oh, I don't think we mentioned it because you talked about the like immediate prelude to the fight where they like eat the meat and then Garfield out for a while. <laughs> But, uh, in the, they, people know the fight is coming at one point because she just silently hangs up a bag of sand 
from the tree outside her house and starts shadow boxing it for like weeks on end to, to prep herself for the right. fight. And I just love this like image of this, the silent, like muscular woman hoisting the sandbag into the tree and then just like punching it over and over again. And people like walking through the town and seeing Miss Amelia going at this punching bag and being like, Oh shit. She's going to kick Marvin Macy's ass. But yeah. But then they're not. They're not. No one's rooting for anyone. I think that's like another thing. It's like the fight happens and people aren't on anyone's side. Even though it's like obvious you should be rooting for Miss Amelia because Marvin's a scumbag. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's sort of like the iconic style of Southern Gothic. But I think a lot about like Southern Gothic was like a huge thing. But on the flip side, the time that this came out, the most popular novel at the time was The Grapes of Wrath. So, I mean, like. John Steinbeck, who was also writing about the human experience and writing about America and society at the time, he's he's not a Southern Gothic writer, no. and he sort of has he doesn't have that sort of dirty, sinister undertone. That I mean, he's still a realist. Like I mean, on the top of them, they're all realist, and underneath there's this current that goes underneath, yeah. which is Southern Gothic, which is kind of like. The underside of, like, people's emotions. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like, if you think about, like, Truman Capote in Cold Blood, another Southern Gothic writer, that is sort of the epitome of, like, like, that's only about the underside of people and, you know, how they relate to each other. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about Southern Gothic as a read, as a writing movement? Um, what do I think about it? I think it's interesting. I, I like it. I know it's a bummer, like, to read a lot of it. I think it makes sense, like, if you think about the two earliest, like, American literary movements being, like, you, it's romanticism and then the reaction to that being, uh, realism and naturalism the idea that like Southern Gothic kind of weds all of the like pre like, kind of welds all the antecedent American literary movements together into this one form yeah and I think like a, the Southern Gothic kind of becomes just sort of almost like an American Gothic like now modern writers they're not specifically from the South but they're writing they're influenced by these writers and you see them. I mean, we talked about Jonathan Franzen a lot, like his awful, every one of his characters are awful. Every one of his characters could have come directly from a Southern Gothic novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of, that's become sort of the American style of like these terrible characters doing terrible things to each other. But I also think it's like, yeah, I think the influence of Southern Gothic has pervaded everything, but I do think it's more, regional than I think a lot of people give it credit for. I don't think you can write a story that's essentially a Southern Gothic story in a city because so much of the vibe of Southern Gothic is about like the threat of the individual. Like the lone drifter comes into town and he's dangerous. Whereas like in a city you have to look at the, the system like an individual in a city is a lot less powerful than an individual in uh, a small town. I think the modern equivalent of that would be this um, trend to writing this suburban fiction. It's almost mm-hmm. the same thing. Like, 
writing about the suburban teens experience is like almost writing about a small town experience. So there, I mean, that type of genre might be really closely related to Southern Gothic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, if you look at something like, uh, if you go back to our first episode, the dungeon master by Sam Lipsight, I feel like there's, it's not dissimilar to this kind of story. Exactly. Where it's about this like one lone eccentric character and like what's going on with them and how does, do they affect the people around them? So overall, what did you think of this story? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. It was really, really good. Are you going to read the rest of the stories in the short story compilation? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. I think so. I haven't started on any of them yet, but I mean, I read The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and I really liked it. And that's, that's why I was kind of really excited to read this novella. And then also I have, as everyone knows, a fondness for the weird and the wonderful. And I think she really embraces that. So, Yeah, I agree. Who do you think some of her who are influenced most by her style? Well, I think like I said it earlier, I think Karen Russell is a pretty good example. I think you can see some of her influence in maybe like Louisa Erdrich. Like the her, she sort of populates her setting with all of these like eccentric characters. And she's also very interested in these like unequal relationships. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. Definitely. I didn't think about that, but I think you're absolutely right. I think I mean, she has a much more positive view on the, the concept of love, but I think there's uh there's some overlap. I think though, part of Carson McCullers, And I said I wasn't going to talk about this on the podcast, but I'm definitely going to talk about it now. Okay. I think part of her view of love and physical relationships and emotional relationships stems from her sort of problematic, like, relationships with the people in her life. And I think that's directly, that's directly some kind of contribution to the way that she depicts relationships in her work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think she's... uh... Her her writing feels very, like, wounded. Yeah, and I think, like, Louise Erdrich on the other side, I mean, she she talks openly about her problems and her relationships. And, I mean, she, doesn't, she hasn't had, like, a Pollyanna life, but her connection to her community and her heritage and the support that she gets from her family and her community sort of is more positive. And I think that's why it's reflected in her work in that way. Her Louis Sergic's work is a lot about families, the community, the the tribe, the, you know, the reservation, and I think those sort of positive influences. Even though the characters have problems and have hard lives and work um, hard at you know having relationships, I think they have a better, healthier basis of a relationship. Carson McCullough had a weird family issue. She had weird marital issues. She had weird sort of. She was friends with Tennessee Williams, right? Which, like, you know, that's going to cause some problems. Yes. Yeah. So I think she's in that sort of community of, like, Truman Capote. And the, we talked about off the podcast about Paul Bowles and how she had a relationship with him and his wife. And they were sort of, and talked a little bit about her relationship with Catherine Ann Porter, another writer. So she has this sort of weird inability to form like healthy positive connections and i think that reflects a lot in her work well yeah i think if the worldview espoused in the story is the worldview she actually held then i could see how that would complicate her ability to form connections with people 
Yeah, I also thought that there's like, I mean, there's sort of like a meanness, like like a jaded edge to her work. Like that's what I was talking about when I said wounded. Yeah, but I think like if cousin Lyman is a reflection of her husband, then she depicted him in the most awful and you know unattractive light that she can. Yeah, she literally made him like a like a sycophant dwarf who yeah. hops around for attention. I mean, so. I mean, not nice. No, no, not nice. Speaking of Truman Capote, that's just not nice. No, no. So. That's also another, because then it's like, with, with people bringing up uh, Harper Lee, like, she, he, she's also connected to Capote. Yes. Well, I think he's, like, sort of, he's the iconic, like, writer when people think about, like, Southern writing. Yeah, I guess. So, I don't know why, I mean, like, he's no Faulkner. Sure, I thought I knew you were going to say that. I was waiting for you to say but, that. But I mean, I think I actually think his best book is in Cold Blood. I mean, I don't know how people debate about how actually factual it is. And is there any? They talk about his weird sort of quasi romantic interest in one of the. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, he had his own weird predilections that he was dealing with, and he may have romanticized some of the story. But I think the writing there, even if if it's not fiction or it's true crime or whatever it is, his writing is probably the best that he achieved. Yeah, I, I get that. Well, anything else? Not that I can think of. So, so what are we reading next? Uh, well, the next episode is our comics episode for the month, and we're going to read uh, By Chance or Providence by Becky Cloonan. It's another one that's by entirely by one cartoonist. Nice. She's all the art and the writing. And it's uh, three short stories that are really only connected via, like, tone. So it'll be not dissimilar to when we did the Sandman uh, anthology volumes. Okay. Like uh, World's End and uh, the Fables and Reflections. But it's pretty recent. It's pretty current, right? It's from a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, so that should be fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Are we done? I think we are, unless you want to add anything else. Uh, I did highlight another section of her writing in this, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, Yeah. Worse yet, a family, when she's talking about how bad the town has become after the betrayal of Cousin Lyman, uh, she's running through this, like, catalog of all this bad stuff that happened, and she goes, Worse yet, a family reunion near Fort Falls Highway ate pork roast and died, every one of them. It was plain that their hog had been affected, and who could tell whether the rest of the meat were safe or not? People were torn between the longing for the good taste of pork and the fear of death. It was a time of waste and confusion. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> that could be like, that's the quote that's in front of like someone's novel. It was a time of wasted confusion. And well, then it's set in 2020. Everybody wants to eat the good taste of pork, but <laughs> that family died from the bad pork roast. Well, that's because the town, the weather was affected by the relationship of Miss Amelia and Marvin. Yeah. But that's what I was saying where it's like, they're, she's got this realist eye towards the setting and towards... Like, the way she populates it with these characters and the small details of their life. But then there's this, like, broader, more uh, fabulous stuff happening in the actual events of the story. Which I dig. I like that a lot. Did this make you think of the Coen brothers? 
Yeah, I could see this as a Coen Brothers movie. But what I wanted to mention was I had just finished not too long ago reading Karen Russell's latest short story compilation called Orange World, which was very good. I highly recommend that. I recommend all of her short stories and Swamplandia is a really great novel. Yeah, we talked about her like very tangentially in the metafiction episode because of the stupid Pulitzer Prize thing with Swamplandia. But yeah, she's a great writer, and I highly recommend her. I'm sure we'll talk about something of hers at some point on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, I just finished that. It came out in May of 2019, and I think I read it towards the Christmas holidays. I remember reading it. So, so that's a really good compliment. She does really great short stories, so highly recommend her. Highly recommend Amy Bender as well. She's another short story does she the, writer. The something... By a wonderful taste to lemon cake. Is that, yeah. What is that? The it's actual sad. Because uh, I read that. The, that's a short story collection, right? Yes. Yeah, I read that, and that, that was pretty good. All right, I, I enjoyed that. I would recommend that one. It's called the peculiar sadness of lemon cake. The peculiar sadness of lemon cake. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Particular sadness. The particular sadness of lemon cake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was her short stories from 2010. And then I think she recently did a short story compilation, The Color Master. Yeah, I, I haven't read that one. Yeah. But she's also, she's sort of highly influenced from Flannery O'Connor and from Carson McCullers, and you can tell in her work. Okay. So, The Color Master came out in 2013. So, yeah, check those out. Read the ballad of this Hat Cafe. It's good as hell. I enjoyed it a lot. Don't one of the, my favorite things that we've read for this podcast, honestly. But not one of the weirdest, so that's good. What do you think the weirdest thing we've read is? Well, I think we've had a history of reading weird things. Mm-hmm. We did Geek Love at one point. Yeah, but that's the pre... That's that's not this version of the podcast. I don't know if... I think this might be the weirdest, all things considered. I'm trying to think of what we would have read that would have been weirder uh the ursula Le Guin was pretty weird yeah i guess but that's science fiction but yeah that one is pretty weird it's got like the dream and all the dream stuff in it yeah yeah maybe that maybe that uh yeah all right but so check out that stuff uh next tune in next episode for by Chance of Providence by Becky Cloonan. I think that's going to be a good one. And if you haven't checked out our first issue of The Cortex, check that out with Nate's short story. It's really good. Yes. It's short, so you can listen to it while you're walking to the bus stop. It's under like 10 minutes, so you know, you, you can really, it's very digestible. Yes. And we we did have a review of it. We did? Yes. Your, your grandmother said you had a beautiful speaking voice. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice. What did she think of the story? She didn't understand it. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> I understood it. I thought it was fantastic. I think it's a really good, quick, short story. It's very enjoyable. Yeah, we're going to try and work in... I mean, nobody said anything bad, so I'm going to assume everyone liked the Cortex. So we'll try and work in episodes uh, when we have the time or the uh, literal, like data space to do it definitely but it won't be on a regular schedule it'll be a little unexpected treat i'm gonna say treat from time to time definitely 
All right. Uh, so, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. <laughs>